Hello and welcome to Cinephils Take 8. Can you believe we're, we've done this now for two months, Rob? Yes, and we're starting to get the hang of it, I think. I, I think so. At least, we, you know, people can moderately understand what we're saying now. So the recording side of things is uh, getting better. And yeah, I feel we've uh, developed a rhythm and, a, and a, uh, you know, a method to how we approach these films. And I, I have to say, I look forward to it every weekend. Absolutely. Every weekend I get to learn something about films from you and I get to talk about films that I like to talk about. So it's, it's awesome. I'm loving this. Yeah. Same here. Uh, so you, why don't you introduce this film since, uh, uh, this was your suggestion. All right. Uh, so this weekend or this week, we are talking about Marnie, Alfred Hitchcock's Marnie from 1964, uh, screenplay by Jay Preston, uh, Preston Allen, uh, based on a book by E. William Graham, uh, produced by Alfred Hitchcock, uh, starring, uh, a few, uh, no names like Sean Connery, uh, Tim Amy Hedren and Diane Baker, uh, cinematography, Robert Burks, uh, edited by George Tomasi, Tomasini, and the music by the uh, immortal Bernard Herrmann. Uh, so, and uh, yeah, the reason I wanted to talk about this movie, uh, particularly after our last uh, conversation, I thought that Hitchcock was... Uh, a necessary go-to, uh, and we haven't yeah. had a chance to talk about him yet. So, yeah, it is a good choice, and I, I think this is an excellent film for us to talk about. It's not one on a lot of people's radar, uh, but it should be. Um, it has uh, a lot of nuance to it that you know I think we could we could spend some time talking about this evening. So, um, one of the things that I was grateful for because this was you know, prompted by the Clouseau um, um, movies that we watched last last time and talked about um, was that this was not a typical Hitchcock in so many ways. Um, and I think that having, a, you know, these sorts of movies that are n not necessarily typical for a director, uh, give us an insight into how that director works. Um, and especially Hitchcock, who at times can be formulaic, um, you know, give us an insight into some of their um, more poetic sides, if you will. Yeah, uh, I didn't know it wasn't a typical Hitchcock movie until you mentioned it, uh, because I, I guess I don't know enough about Hitchcock. Uh, to me, it struck me as um, if it wasn't a typical Hitchcock movie, it was a exceptional Fritz Lang movie. Yeah, um, he's, you know, yeah. he's, he's really influenced by Fritz Lang, actually. Yeah. Um, so uh, what did you what stood out to you about uh, Marnie? Uh, you said it was atypical. Uh, yeah. What uh, what drew you in? What were what was uh, something remarkable about this film? Well, so it wasn't uh, a thriller. Uh, you know, it comes across in some ways as a sort of psychological um, thriller, but it isn't a thriller. It's a it's a love story, which is, uh, I think, the only way that I can describe it. And it's one in which uh, sure, uh, uh, Connery gets to come across as uh, a bit more a bit more gentlemanly than we expect. 
So I have to say um, that uh, it was it was delightful to rewatch it in in light of having watched Clouseau's thrillers last week. Yeah, uh, Sean Connery actually surprised me in this. Uh, I, of course, know Sean Connery from The Untouchables and the early James Bond and Highlander. Um, And uh, yeah, this uh, he did. He was doing something different here, and I quite liked it. I'm not sure how I feel about his character, um, or maybe that's how I feel about the time, uh, which was like 1964, I guess, is well when the movie was shot and it was set. I think in that era, uh, yeah. there was a, like there was a Howard Johnson's, which was looking spectacular, not the rundown <laughs> shack that they are now. Yeah, um, he was clear, like, Connery's character, um, uh, Mark Rutland, uh, was at the same time uh, condescending, uh, yet I think his heart was in the right place. I'm not sure about that, honestly. There was, like, I was getting a strong... uh, Lord Alfred Tennyson vibes from him. Um, Yeah. Yeah, So, I mean, at first you think he's this manipulative, uh, rich uh, jerk um, who's, you know, uh, entrapped this woman. And that's, I suppose that's the thriller angle. Uh, How's she going to get out of this is, is what we keep wondering. Is it going to end up becoming violent? Is there something, uh, you know, that um, some way she's going to pull one over on him as well. Um, but it turns out it's more complex than that. And Marnie as the character, I think, is a is actually a very uh, sympathetic, uh, strong person. So I was I was touched with the treatment of her PTSD um, yeah. later in the film. I thought that was um, more sensitive than it had to be at the time. So I watched it thinking I was going to watch something like um, Repulsion, you know, uh, the Polanski film, uh, which I don't want to watch. I I don't like that film, uh, actually. Even though it's a great film, I, I can't watch it. It's very difficult to bear. I have some issues with Polanski that are quite substantive. Yeah. If we never, if we never watch uh, uh, Repulsion, that is fine by me. And uh, we yeah. might, yeah, we might even uh, just say, uh, like the only Polanski that that I might be coaxed into talking to would be uh, talking about would be Rosemary's Baby. Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But, and, uh, and even that, even that yeah. has very strong misogynistic vibes. That's um, a borderline case. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, but this didn't. Yeah. Um, yeah. I thought that Hitchcock treated the character with um, care. Um, we we would be tempted to um, paint her with a very broad brush, um, but Hitchcock, I think, uses a fine brush and and makes her a, a three dimensional character in the end that that has a lot more depth and um, and brings light to some important issues. Um, yes. And and I, I don't know. Did, did you have that sense as well, Ron? Absolutely. Not just with Tippi Hedren's character, but 
all of all of the women in this movie. Yeah. Uh, like uh, Tippy, uh, uh, Louise Latham as uh, Marnie's mother. mother uh, right. She she was again presented like in that first uh, substantive dialogue between uh, Marnie and her. Uh, she was presented in not a very good light as sort of a a hick who was living in like in the ship the shipyards of Brooklyn basically and well, I thought uh, they were Baltimore but maybe Baltimore no no you yeah. no you're right it's Baltimore uh, yeah and I was but from, by the time you're at the end of the movie she's really a sympathetic three-dimensional character uh, right. of profound depth and, and and the other other so um, there's not only her but um, I think you're right there are other women in the film the, the secretary who's that famous actress uh, met, um, who plays the secretary who orients her in, in the- uh, Marriott Hartley yeah exactly yeah yeah. Um, she is a an intelligent uh helpful um person who you know tries to steer um marnie i forget her name at that time yeah Um, but you know on the right you know to help her basically with this job yeah um super competent so competent that she can make fun of the boss's lack of mental acuity exactly Uh, like you know like uh he can't he has the safe combination written down here because he can't quite memorize it and the implication is like not anybody <laughs> yeah anybody can do this yeah. i can do this you know she what she presented every scene every scene she was in as supremely uh, competent yeah. Um, yeah you know and i think that was really quite remarkable uh coming from this director and coming from this time period, there were clearly uh, none of the women in here were portrayed as uh, I thought they would be portrayed. No, uh, and that, yeah. they, that 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 uh, was refreshing to see that in in this film. Um, Hitchcock is a very competent um uh, director who you know learned his craft actually working in Germany, um, uh, I think with Lang at some point, um, and and you know adopts some of the uh, German expressionist style styles in in his films, but in this one especially, wouldn't you say? Oh, absolutely! Like again, the shipyard, uh, like the the great uh, paintings of, yeah. of of the background, like that's complete. It was obviously a painting. It was obviously meant to be a painting. Uh, was a beautiful shot. It, it was beautiful, scene. and it was total German expressionism. Uh, mm-hmm. The overplayed thunderstorms, uh, like these. This is again a trope from German expressionism. Uh, the loud thunderstorms. You have this way back in uh, Faust, uh, right. carrying on through, and I think this is this is. It does serve uh, uh, as a major plot point 
in this movie, very Shakespearean in that, uh, how like the world changes and there's a thunderstorm involved. It's like, yes, that thanks. You know, there's a storm and drawing and then all of the, all of the associated emotions, uh, with it. Yeah. uh, Lovely to watch, um, as, as most of his films are, I think. Yes. And again, from the very opening shot, like yeah. the like the handbag yeah you know like this is this is brilliant it it draws you right into it and it is complete it's just pure visual storytelling here yes. uh you know which is really remarkable and again german expressionism like well we've talked about uh Fritz Lang's M and we start off with that and it's like the same sort of thing going on just this amazing visual storytelling right from the the camera the first shot and I thought that was truly breathtaking um, yeah and he, he uses some some of the same stylistic uh, methods of you know having the having the character look right in the camera at certain times, uh, you know, engaging you, which is a, which is a shocking thing to have happen because you're looking in the eye of somebody who's telling you something excitedly. Um, yes. And that's that again, something that, uh, Chris Lang does well in, in M. Um, yeah. but, um, again, translated well into color. So, uh, Hitchcock is shooting this in color and I think paints with, with, with all the colors available, uh, 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 an interpretation of, of his form of expressionism. Yeah, I thought it was uh, really well done. And like the the odd landscapes, uh, I thought was uh, something interesting. I was trying to figure out uh, what was going on with the, the cruise, like this boat yeah. that they were on. It was completely deserted. Except for that. strange, right? There was almost yeah. nobody on it, right? Yeah, like, I don't think there was anybody else on that boat, like, that we saw. Like, when that he's... Yeah, like, when Rutland's looking, running around looking for um, Marnie, uh, he's, like, this is during the day, and he walks through two decks, or runs through two decks, and they're completely empty. And I thought this was... I think there was something going on there. Like this is showing perhaps uh, some the psychological reality of uh, Rutland's character at this moment. But just that showing the psychological reality of a character through relation to an oddly depopulated uh, setting or if it's not a it's not always depopulated, but a setting that is weird. Um, this is literally, a, literally at sea, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like this is a this is a callback to uh, German expressionism, where it's like there ain't there. It's hard to find a completely normal setting in uh, those early German expressionist movies. And I was yeah. wondering, like, when I saw the shot, the sequence. Uh, it stood out to me. What what's going on here? Did he what's what's he trying to say? Uh, and then well, this is after Mark had raped his wife. Uh, yes, so he's um, he is definitely out to sea emotionally. He he had vowed he wouldn't do that, and he did that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then she killed. She killed. She tried to kill herself. Yes. 
Yeah. Yeah. So, so this is, I think, a, a representation of that it is it is not naturalistic. That's for sure. Yeah. And he, she tried to kill herself, yet she kept her composure. Right. Like, like the line after he pulls her out of the pool, it, he's like, he says, "If you wanted to, if you wanted to kill yourself, why didn't you jump into the ocean?" And she's like, "I didn't. I wanted to kill myself. I didn't want to feed the fish." Oh, and I just thought. It's like, that's an she's exceptional a, line. She's a bright, humorous uh, woman who's deeply troubled. And and um, I think we need to talk about this, this um, preceding the boat, because um, this is when we think maybe Rudlin is just an ass. Um, but I, you know, in retrospect and having, you know, knowing how it turns out, uh, we learn he's not. So he entrapped her. He had yes. a good and traps her into marriage and it is like a Bronte novel right um, we think it's like a Bronte novel and he's like a Heathcliff or something um, because he's he's used this to get something he wants and that's I mean he's, it's pretty it's pretty uh, horrific and we can't help but feel terrible for Marnie who's getting deeper and deeper into her into her madness or depression or whatever is going on with her that we don't know at the time. Yeah. She's a, she, and she emotes caged animal for 90% of this movie. Right. Uh, like, like the ride to the, to the honeymoon, which was supposed to be to Fiji. Uh, you know, that was just like, she was trapped animal. And, right. uh, Yes, there's. It's very hard to be sympathetic to Rutland as what through his actions, but also for me through his motives, uh, like as as they are revealed through his actions. Like what he's very clear why he's doing this. He wants to make her trust him, uh, right. like the cat that he has in his office. Um, he he wants to capture her. And he's referencing he's almost like an anth an old school horrific anthropologist uh, to capture her for study. Yeah, he's, he's doing what is he a some sort of zoologist, right? As yeah. well as a banker. Yeah. Yeah, we think, you know, he's, we think he's just studying her. Yeah. And I find that like really a deplorable set of motive motivations uh, going into this. Uh by the end of the movie, I'm not sure how much he redeems himself when uh, by playing the Freudian psychoanalyst um, and re and inducing more trauma into these characters' lives and then justifying it by saying, oh, well, I'm actually saving you. It seems like... A Nietzschean, there is almost like a Nietzschean critique going on here with uh, the final scene, uh, which I will talk about later. I don't want to jump to the end right now. There's a, yeah, like there's enough to talk about before that. But I'm not sure that uh, Sean Connery redeems himself by the end of the movie. But let's uh, for now. Uh, yeah. So that 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 could be. So I, I, there are two ways. To, there's at least two ways to take his motivations, and whether or not they were sincere throughout, um, 
and you know i'm 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 open to any one of those interpretations but um let's so i think one way to try to understand it is this this and he also entraps her into this dinner party where he invites stut right which is um yeah, it's not clear if he invited Stutt or if Diane Baker, who uh, the, yeah, the sister-in-law, Lil, Lil uh, the sister-in-law, which there there's a little messed up bit of a psychology <laughs> going on there. Like, uh, so she is the sister-in-law or the ex-sister-in-law. Uh, right. she, uh, she's uh, Mark's uh, the sister of Mark's former wife, Mark's a widower, uh, right. who's decided to hang around dad house uh, has, has a house for him right yeah and yes clearly wants to sleep with him to replace the sister and uh that her own sister that's right. like a little bit of really messed up psychology going on with there and i think that uh she invent she, lil uh in uh invited stut uh to the party okay. Yeah, that could be. Um, and that she did after eavesdropping, right, um, to get the information about Stutt. Um, and, and I think that um, Mark didn't. So if Mark didn't plan that, then we have then we have less evidence for him trying to manipulate or hurt her. And, and we I think there's lots of evidence that he, he actually had fallen in love with her. Um and but I, I could be wrong. Um, maybe maybe not yet. Um, at that point, he's still wrestling with with something. Yes. Yeah. And um, yeah, it was uh, interesting. Like, I think perhaps like at the end, Mark thinks he's done a good job. Uh, Sean Connery's character, I think he thinks he's saved the day. And I think he's thinks he's done. He is the hero of his own story. Uh, but I wonder about that. Uh, I wonder. It's like so he is. He thinks he's this way, but is he actually, or is he just a villain? Um, no, I, is, yeah, that's that's a good question. Um, and I'm not so sure I know the answer to that, having watched it. Um, but I want him not to be the villain. I, I think that by the time he has, um, so after the rape, when he saves her from the pool, uh, I think he has clear regret. I think he, um, he he tries to make amends for the rest of the film. He never does that to her again. Um, he respects her her boundaries um, and protects her at, at that uh, at that party when when Stud is there. Yeah, I, I guess the thing I'm wondering is like, okay, his regret that he expresses after the rape is why does he have that regret? It's because he violated his own moral code. Uh, not because he violated uh, her, Marnie. Well, what's your or, evidence for that? Well, because he said like immediately afterwards, he's like, um, oh my God. I promised right. you that I wouldn't do this. It's like, so like, it's like, what does he feel bad about him breaking his own promise? Uh, it's well, a violation. 
Yeah. Um, so you know. I think that's part of it. Um, but it's also he wouldn't have that regret were it not for the fact that he has at that point, I think, fallen in love with her. That's my sense anyway. Yeah. Yeah. I guess uh, maybe it's because I'm teaching Nietzsche to the kids this week. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, that I Yeah. I, I read the. Okay, like let the, me suggest that at this point, he is not being a Nietzschean, but he's being yeah. Sartian. Uh, he is. Um, um, having lost his wife, having once um, been married and having sacrificed so much and put himself at such risk to marry Marnie, I think he really wants to help her. He's, um, he is, you know, attempting to maybe not psychoanalyze her, but to, um, but to, uh, have, have some sympathy uh, for, you know, the other. So this is a guy who's been, um, you know, uh, dealt some bad hands in some ways, but he's also very isolated, rich, and um, his father clearly doesn't care much for him either. Yeah, um, publishers made a lot of money back in the day, I guess, eh? Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> I, I, um, and, and so... I think that he is, he's looking for somebody uh, to put his trust in, put his faith in, put his love in. Um, and, and he's, he, he wants her to trust him because he doesn't have anybody else. Dalil has her motives. I think he's, he's alone. He's profoundly alone. Sure. Uh, he is, he's clearly alone. Um, Lil wants him, but he doesn't want Lil. Right. Uh, you're right, and he he comports himself to all his business colleagues that we see with a with an air of superiority. Uh, so he must feel isolated from them. Uh, he doesn't like banking or whatever he's doing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think I think it is publishing, but yeah, but publishing. like. Yeah, like, yeah, he doesn't like it. It's sort of a hobby. Uh, the person who runs it, uh, he basically steamrolls that guy uh, to get Marnie hired. Um, and yes, he's uh, spending... He's a, he's apparently a wonder kid. Like, the, the company we know was going bankrupt, and then he came in and in a week uh, right-sized it uh, yeah. and turned it into something highly profitable um so he he's good at it as in the same way that maybe uh elon musk is good to twitter uh you know <laughs> you know like um we don't know but like you know the the suggestion is that like Yes, he he fired a lot of the board of directors. He got rid of the board of directors, secretary, her secretary. Like so now he's cutting into he he right. He laid off a whole bunch of people yeah. uh, to turn a profit to spend 70,000 in a week. Uh, wow, I'm really cynical about his motives. Uh, <laughs> yeah, but you know what? Yeah. I mean, what was important to him was her. At that, and it wasn't to win anything. So Marnie doesn't have; uh, she's not um, of a, of the aristocracy. She doesn't offer him anything other than an equal of sorts. So he admired her 
for her conniving for her, um, you know, this heist, uh, that intrigued him. And he saw something in her that was deeper than other people. That's, that's the way I, that's the only way it makes sense to me because she's not, I mean, she's lovely, but she's, she's not, um, going to her father, you know, the father's not going to like her except for the horsemanship. That's about it. Um, and she's intelligent and, and, and he sees something in her and, and I mean, he's not a crook, so it's not her being a crook that he saw in her it's that he knows there's something more to it okay yeah that's that's my that's it, the, my okay, two yeah. minutes, I guess on it yeah yeah um so let's talk about um well all the Freudian stuff going on okay. in this movie and there was a lot of it um right from and maybe you can shed some light on it, but like to me, it, that horse had to represent something uh, more that like more oh, than just oh, yeah. yeah, more than I being a horse. Something. Yeah, uh, and um, yeah, this this beautiful black horse that Marnie um, is in love with and loves more than any human. It's clear, other than perhaps her mother. Um, but yeah. she also gets on. Unre- she she doesn't get reciprocated love from her mother she feels that her mother doesn't love her for some reason and it's and we find out later all the complicated reasons she thinks that but yeah the horses always mean something horses are powerfully sexual uh representations in all literature and movies um yeah but there's also something about the black horse right Mm -hmm. um there's some dark uh there's something dark that has that that gives her this power that she feels connected to um and then that you know ends up being having to go right in a very tragic way yeah like uh which is it the is it the id like you know is is that what like the the horse is just well I, I think the name what was the name of the horse Fiero or Furio or something like this which uh, Furio th- Furio yeah. yeah doesn't that basically just mean desire uh, uh, yeah I believe so yeah yeah like and to me it's so it's like okay so the horse is like an approximation of the Freudian id okay. Right. Uh, so and uh she gets on it early on like those are until she the very end of the movie back. yeah and uh she is happy doing that at least yeah. in the first bit um however like it gets uh complex like really quickly as soon as we meet that horse because why did she steal all the money from uh from stutt uh, because she want she was paying off uh, the the stable fees, and she was giving her mom a bit of money. Uh, mm-hmm. But those, and that's how she burned through her previous uh, money too. It was so we have like structurally like she is actually 
uh, subverting capitalism or maybe being a very good capitalist uh, to pay for the to pay for the celebration of her id, uh, to yeah. make herself happy, uh, to pay for her desires. Uh, and this whole project is, seems to be going along quite swimmingly uh, until Mark comes in and screws it all up. Yeah. You know? well, and, and, and she's leading. So we could have... This could have been a, a, a heist tale, right? About somebody yeah. uh, who is just a crook um, who, who, go, who burns through these small schemes uh, and has to move on from town to town. Um, but there's there's something she's doing with this, and it is she's not interested in the money. She's not interested in material wealth. She's trying to fill in some some void. Um, that's been, you know, closed off. And I think there are, you know, it's clear that it's, it has to do with the sexual trauma from, uh, her childhood, um, and the guilt, uh, she has about, uh, her mother regarding that. So yeah, this is not, uh, Ocean's Eleven, right? This is, yeah. this is yeah. something, uh, much more deep and complex, um, with, that I think Hitchcock treats, um, with complexity. Yes, he does. Um, right, right up to the very end, like the lot, like even the, the psychological twist, uh, the psychological reveal at the end of the movie was, uh, done very well. I thought Uh, it was, it wasn't, it wasn't in your face. It was with some tenderness, um, and with some sympathy. Um, and, I thought, you know, proper attention to the right people telling the stories. Yes. And it was and it was acted brilliantly uh, by all the three players involved there, which was like Connery, um, Hedron and uh, Latham or Latham. Like uh, they were all doing stellar jobs here, uh, which reminds me of like other times I've seen like the great psychological reveal in movies um, Midnight Alley uh, or Nightmare Alley comes to mind where it's done much more poorly both from yeah. a direct from the director's standpoint and from the actors it's like okay it's just this is hackneyed whereas yeah. with Marnie it was like okay this is a lot happening right now but I'm believing it. Uh, and, and he's, he, he's paved the way with um, some of the stylistic things with the, um, <coughs> excuse me. Oh, goodness. With the, um, uh, this flashes of red when she's having these flashbacks. Yes. Yeah. Like that. that and there was also the verbal cue of white and red, like uh, that uh, Connery, when he was playing the word association game with her uh, in the mansion, like uh, that was the word association. Right. He was uh, she he said white, 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 white. And then she red and yeah. uh, free. And so like that was a. Uh, 
nice tip off like uh, or nice foreshadowing. I thought it was really well done. It was building nicely to it. We know that she freaks out during thunderstorms. We don't know why there is a thunderstorm like all the pieces that needed to be on the board had been put on the board and maneuvered to just the right place for this psychological catharsis to occur. And I thought that was really something uh, that was skillful directing because when these things were occurring throughout their movie, um, they weren't, it's not like, ah, yes, he's putting another piece in play here. This is going to, yeah. We don't know where they're going and they could have been just uh, throwaways. Yeah. Um, Yeah. But he, I think he pieces them together. It reminded me of um, a novel that I very much like, A Prayer for Owen Meany, where you see these little um, pieces of the story and they pass and you don't remember until it all comes together at the end. And it's and it wasn't gimmicky, you know. So I think you mentioned Shyamalan last one. And, and he at his hackneyed worst, uh, does, you know, a pretty good Hitchcock. Um, but sometimes he does it very well. Um, yes. and I, I thought, um, you know, this is the sort of model or template for that. Yeah. I thought it was, uh, really interesting. Uh, yes. How this was done. It was not, it was done deliberately, obviously by Hitchcock. Uh, but as the viewer, you're like, Oh, well, that, that's a nice, stylistic contrivance with the red you know it's like okay sure why not uh and then like the thunderstorm like the first like none of these the thunderstorms that preceded this seemed at all out of place or weird uh i'm thinking like you know okay yes uh her mom lives in a in a ship on the harbor uh okay yeah there's a thunderstorm over over the harbor. No problem. Makes sense to me. Uh, late. It was a dark and stormy night when she's in the building. Okay, right. it's fine. You know, like yeah, this seems legit. You know, like this is. Uh, but what Hitchcock is doing here is planting little seeds that, by the time you get to the end of this, the ultimate sequence, it's just all the forces marshal together to bring you this great psychological uh, moment of clarity, uh, which I think redeems uh, Tippi Hedren's character. Uh, redeems, so, yeah. yeah, redeems uh, Tippi Hedren or uh, Bernice, uh, Marnie's mom, you know, like who, like from the, first sequence that we saw her in I at least myself I didn't like her very much uh I there wasn't there wasn't much to like there it's like well your daughter okay she's distant and she's a criminal whatever she's coming to visit and you're seeming to pay more attention to uh the neighbor kid uh you know and it, it seems like and Fair, like when Marnie says in that opening uh, 
in the first meeting with her mother that her mother is cold and aloof to her. It's like, yes, I believe this. See, clearly, this is what is being emoted. And so I wasn't a big fan of hers. But by the end of the, the final sequence, it's like, wow, OK, extraordinary. Like, extraordinary. Well, who does this by, by, I think, making this a... You know, as I said, it's not a thriller. It's more like a love story. I, I got strong Bronte vibes out of it. Um, and the the fact is that he he is allowing these women to be complex. So sometimes Hitchcock is, um, uh, and for his later films, I think probably justly criticized for uh, having some, you know, two-dimensional female characters or, um, you know, using stereotypes. Um, but here, Hedron does a magnificent job of giving this woman complexity, as does, I forget, the actress who plays the mother. Um, yeah, what's her name? Uh, Latham. Uh, Latham. Mary yeah, uh, yeah, Louise Latham. Yes, and 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 Hitchcock lets them talk. You know, right. this is um, this is a, um, a a parlor drama of sorts uh, where people are able to talk, um, and even when you're you know you just you want to drag out of her the story from Marnie, you know something's going on, and you feel that in Mark too. Um, he lets them do it at their own pace, which I think is a uh, a testament to uh, some, you know, uh, some progressive tendencies in this film. Oh, absolutely! Like, uh, what is the test that they that they do, uh, where it's like how much of the dialogue is spoken by females to other females in a movie? There, this test. Oh, wow. uh, uh, yeah. There, there's a specific name for it. That, I know, but I've forgotten. Yeah. Forget anyway, yeah, like if you want to like that dialogue between Marnie and her mother, Bernice, um, like it's two women talking to each other about their own personalities. It's like because another part of this test is like, OK, so what are the women talking about? Is it uh, two women talking about uh a male, the male protagonist or something done. No, it's like these two women are talking to each other about the new, about their own interiority. And, uh, that was really extraordinary to happen, uh, in this film. Uh, thank you. Yes. Like that was, uh, yeah. And that was going on here. This yeah. was really remarkable. 1964. This happened. Um, it is, and and for um, and, and I think uh, so. He had searched around. Hitchcock had searched around for who was going to play this character. A lot of people wanted to. Um, it was supposed to be Grace Kelly at first. Um, there was some uh, pushback apparently from because she was now Princess Grace. Oh <laughs> so uh, yeah, yeah, that would be appropriate. That might have been awkward. Yes, I, I get why yeah uh, Marilyn Monroe wanted to play it um she would have been great she would have been great um yeah. but I think Tippi Hedren um uh is you know I can't see now uh watching this film without her in that role because uh she she gives this person uh so much depth and 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 sympathy and 
and you just you just want her to be well um and you want her to to be able to um overcome whatever she's going through yeah yeah we'll overcome everything all of this because there's so many things that she's now got overcome you know she's a criminal (laughs) she has severe ptsd um she's a um she's a, a sexual crime victim um and she's been roped into this marriage uh through um through duress <laughs> she didn't want to marry him yeah um so let me uh give my uh I'm the Nietzschean thing that i can't get out of my head going okay. on Please. okay okay so tippy hedron She's a criminal, uh, happily a criminal, uh, doing quite well as a criminal. Uh, she's pulled this off a number of times. Uh, she has a strained relationship with her mother, but it's functional. Um, she can pay the, the stable fees for her horse. She's getting away with everything living not perhaps the best life, but a pretty fine life. Uh, Then Sean Connery comes in, uh, Mark Rutland comes into the picture as a predator. Uh, I'm thinking at this for the first half of the movie up to the rape scene, he was explicitly a predator. Uh, he, he was reading books about how to capture and train animals, uh, which to borrow a phrase from Nietzsche, it's like the goal of the moralist is to me is to breed an animal that is capable of making promises. And I think that this is who he is for at least the first half of the movie. Then, uh, the rape happens, uh, it wasn't like he was like Rutland's character was uh, swept away by desire. This was a conscious choice on his part. Uh, he like if you recall the scene exactly, she says goodnight to him. And he's at that point, he is sitting in the chair reading a book, a book about what, how to capture animals. And then he marches into her bedroom uh rips off her clothes and proceeds to rape her. Um, this was not, uh, this was a power move on his part and it was a deliberate power move after that for the part of the movie, the last half of the movie, he continues to just tighten the screws. Uh, he is now becomes a Pygmalion sort of thing where he is really trying to it's like, OK, this is how you how you should be a good wife and all of this sort of thing. And here's how we're going to reform you, you broken, broken person. And I suggest that Marnie was broken at that point. Why? Because he broke her uh, because he raped her. And then at the end of the at the end of the movie, the final scene, like he comes in, he forces Marnie, he yanks her out of the car. He forces her into 
her mother's apartment. And he forces the catharsis. It's a violent act that he does. He thinks he's doing the right thing, and he thinks he's fine and well doing this. He thinks he's a hero. He thinks he's the hero of his own story. But what is he doing to these characters? He's dredging up things that they didn't want dredged up. Uh, not at all. Uh, the mother didn't want. The mother prayed that Marnie would forget it and was willing to accept uh, the coldness from her daughter as a consequence. Uh, but she she prayed to God, and then um, Sean Connery forces it. Who wins at the end of this? Okay, now Marnie knows that she murdered somebody. And feels guilty forever and ever and ever. Now the mother's dark secret uh, that she was a prostitute uh, is out in the open. Uh, the mother's not feeling good about that. Um, Marnie's not feeling good about being a murderer. The only person who's feeling good at this at the end of this is Sean Connery because he's like I have uh, f I've deliberately stalked a woman entrapped her broke her made her feel like crap and then have her thank me for making her feel like crap that's and so Sean Connery's like Yes, and I was doing the morally correct thing. What was the morally correct thing that he did? Was it stalking her for the first half of the movie? Was it raping her? Was it exposing all the trauma and making her cognizant of the fact that she was a murderer and that her mother was a prostitute? Like, I'm... I have difficult. Like he is, he's asserting morality to make people feel, to make all those around him feel terrible uh and to me this is really well it seems really nietzschean so there there's my uh yeah that's why i didn't like this character very much but uh yeah it's okay be, yeah, yeah that's that's a fair interpretation it's not my my yeah. interpretation so i think Listen, if he's a predator who wants to put things on display, right, in his cases, he could have still done that with Marnie. Um, okay. He had he had all the leverage. He had uh, every uh, she had no leverage um, and he didn't. So he could have regarded her. Right. So I, I keep uh, trying to put a Sartrean um, uh, spin on this. So he could have regarded her, you know. Uh, with his gaze and just viewed her from afar and not tried to um, uh, comprehend her as a person. Okay. Mm -hmm. And she could have done that too. So she has this, uh, this is a debilitating thing that's going on for her. She's not going to be able to, you know, she's going to use up the East Coast and her mother's not going to move out to the West Coast. Uh, so she's going to um, have to take it on the lamb. She's divided. Her self is divided. She has this, uh, you know, 
this exterior that she's got to keep changing all the time to try to uh, accommodate her her schemes um and she has a this um uh something she's she has to hide her herself um and she can't do this and be a whole person um and be and so as i say uh, mark had every opportunity to you know, now that he's got her to treat her like a conquest, treat her like a, a toy. Um, but he doesn't, he continues to try to understand her. His questioning is meant to comprehend her, to put himself in, in her, you know, in, in the, in the eyes of, in the place of the other, uh, to, to fully comprehend her as a human being. Um, and in doing so, uh, to heal this rift that's tearing her apart. And it, and it's no longer about them being together. He has no, I think he has no illusions that they're going to be together, uh, at the end of all this, no matter what happens. Um, he wants her, I think, to be well. When he holds her, when she's, um, you know, scared by the thunder, I don't think that was a purely predatory action. And I think that, the, I mean, he, the evidence for that is in the fact that he, he continued to try to um, tease out of her what's going on. And, and eventually he does it in the only way that he can. And she's going to be a better, healthier person in a better, healthier relationship with her mother as a result. I don't, I don't believe there's any uh, conceit that they are going to have a long, healthy marriage together. Uh, they may. It's, it's irrelevant at that point. This catharsis at the end. Um, helps to heal this rift in her, uh, you know, of her um, id and ego, helps her to uh, become a whole, uh, or at least start down the path of becoming a whole um, person. Um, and um, especially uh, to fix this terrible um, uh, secret that is uh, that has torn her apart from her mother and made her act out in these ways that were self-destructive and, um, you know, not, not going to be, um, stable or, um, nor could they endure. So my reading of it is, is, is quite different. I think that Mark by this time is actually concerned that she becomes well, um, and that it is in her best interest to be well. Uh, you can't continue to lead a life, um, in, you know, as a, as a whole person by hiding all of this deep down inside you, it needs to come out. It needs to be healed. It needs to be confronted. And, and it's not that he confronts her. He gets her to confront herself and her mother. Um, in, and, and I thought it was handled with sympathy and tenderness. Um, and it seems you can interpret it as violence of some sort, but catharsis is violent. Um, oh, yes. and, yeah. so it's a, it's a violent process. Um, but it leads to, um, wellness, uh, down the road. So that, that's my take on it. Um, and that's why I thought it was actually 
you know, it's a surprising character for me. My, my spin on this Mark character, um, makes, makes him less uh, demonic than yours. Um, most assuredly. Yeah. And, uh, and I compliment you, uh, to, to uh, counter my Nietzschean reading with a Sartrean reading, that that was excellent. That was so cool. That was that was awesome, man. <laughs> like that's a that's that's a some that's a, like some that's a deep philosophy cut there. That, that's great. <laughs> well, I have to say, you know, one of my favorite um, reads in philosophy is being in nothingness. I think it's a fantastic read. It's 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 and not. I haven't met many people who think that. So I. I'm not surprised if you if you have a different. Oh no, no, I love I love being in nothingness. Uh, certainly more than uh, the the sequel, uh, the critique yeah. of dialectical reason. I find that uh, basically unreadable. Uh, yeah, but being in nothingness is brilliant. Uh, yeah, and in and in two weeks I'm teaching it to my students. So, uh, yeah. so in two weeks I'll be I'll be all Sartrean, <laughs> you know. And, yeah, Nietzsche was a hack. Sartre, that's where we are. The you know it's all it's all Sartre. Yes, in two weeks. Uh, okay. Uh, best moment, we'll worst come moment. Back to this conversation then in two weeks. Yeah, best moment, worst moment uh, in this film for you. Best scene, worst um, scene. Worst, worst moment is when that stupid branch comes through the window during that storm. Uh, it was utterly unbelievable, um, totally unnecessary. I mean, it accomplishes something uh, style, uh, metaphorically, um, but that's about it. Um, so I was I was upset with that scene, actually. I found myself uh, sneering in disbelief. Yeah. Um, best moment for me... Uh, was was you know the the denouement the the this scene where they're finally having this conversation and finding out the truth and and again it's like one of my favorite John Irving move, um, books um, a prayer for Owen Meany where the little pieces all make sense and everything you've seen is tied together in a way that makes us understand the character. Um, and and love them in some way. We feel this love. At least I did. Okay. Yeah. Good. How about you? Uh, uh, for me, uh, the best uh, sequence was the opening sequence. Uh, I just thought the camera work was sublime. I thought it was brilliant. The focusing on the ha handbag, uh, the way the train station was framed uh, in those opening in that opening sequence, I thought was breathtaking. Uh, I thought that was great cinema. Yeah. Uh, uh, worst moment uh, was was when she shot the horse just because it's like yeah no like like when the, when you saw the horse's ankle break and then the horse was down on the ground and it was just it was the worst scene because it was so effective yeah. and it was so t like but it was like it was to me like oh man this oh no you could just do it off do it off camera i don't need to see the the horse it's leg break. I know what's going to happen. That fence is, that's a stone wall. It's too high. The horse ain't going to make it. I know, I know. And yet, but no, we have to do a close up of the horse's ankles breaking. And then we have to see them, see them on the ground, uh, uh flying yeah, out. And I'm like, yeah, oh, this is, tough. yeah, it's like, yeah, that was just, no, like, you know, like, like, As secretariat. 
As a, yeah. as a former equestrian, I have to say the fact that they aren't wearing helmets on this hunt just made me, I, I'm astounded. I guess that's, that might've been the case, but you know, she should have been dead. And given that, you know, given that accident. That was, uh, you mentioned that, uh, that was some, that whole sequence of doing uh, British aristocracy hunt in the fields of Pennsylvania uh, struck me as a bit weird. Uh, well, they do it, though. Yeah, yeah. The East Coast. Yeah, yeah. It just, it just struck me as odd. Yeah. Uh, you know, like, it's like, okay, here we are, right? We're doing, we have beagles doing a, a fox hunt, in, and it was clearly trans, uh, transported from uh, an English countryside setting. And I just was like, it just struck me as a bit weird. Uh, yeah, yeah, no, it's, yeah, it was offset and off putting, I'd say. Yeah. Um, but yeah. again, you know, yeah. I kept thinking, okay, so this is Skyfall, Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this is yeah. uh, a strange um, piece of, I guess, his father was supposed to be Scottish too, um, you know, sitting in the middle of, uh, um, you know, um, or, or was that New Jersey? So it was either Pennsylvania or New Jersey. Um, probably New Jersey because they work in Manhattan, I guess. No, that was they worked in Philadelphia. That was Philadelphia. So, okay. Yeah, yeah. So that's. Yeah, I, I just assumed with the places that Yeah, I I didn't know I I didn't know where her mother lived. You were right on that. <laughs> I was wrong. We're we're both just dislocated people, David. Uh, yeah. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, what day I'm, is it? I'm grateful to uh, watch this film, and I actually watched it twice uh, because it was um, surprising. The first time. So I appreciate it. Great. Well, now it is the time of the evening uh, for you to tell us uh, what's next. Right? Yes. Well, um, so um, I've got a double header, if that's OK uh, with you. Great. Um, I so I'm going to tell you uh, one is called Night Moves. It's by Arthur Penn. Um, and the other is something I'm sure you know, The Conversation by Francis Ford Coppola. So here's the thing. Tippi Hedren's daughter is Melanie Griffith. Melanie Griffith is in Night Moves, a 19, I think, 74 film um, by Arthur Penn um, with Gene Hackman. Gene Hackman, of course, is the lead in uh, The Conversation. Francis Ford Coppola. These are great 1970s naturalistic films. Uh, you know, one of my yeah. favorite genres. Um, I'm, I'm interested to see what you think of them. If you haven't seen yeah. Night Moves, I know you've seen Conversation. Yeah, I, I haven't seen Night Moves, so that'll be something. I'll be looking forward to that. And the conversation is, in my mind, one of the most brilliant films from any decade. Uh, it's a fantastic film, and yeah. I, you know, I, I have to sneak it in there because we couldn't yeah. skip. Yes, absolutely. All right. So okay. uh, next time, um, Night Moves um, and The Conversation. Um, Rob, it's been a pleasure as always. I enjoy when we, yeah. when we don't agree on things too, especially, uh, so we can have these, uh, um, conversations and, um, you know, do, do a bit of philosophizing. Yeah. And it was, well, we, we agree on Marnie was an awesome film. 
Yeah. Uh, that much we agree on. And Hitchcock was at uh, the height of his powers with uh, this one, uh, even though so. nobody at the time thought so. Uh, it was right. wasn't until later that they start to really critically reassess it for the masterpiece it is. OK, yep. well, thank you so much, David. And I'm so looking forward to our next conversation. Night moves and the conversation about the conversation. Oh, that'll be fun. OK, <laughs> you bet. Great.